Well, if you have a Bible with you, why don't you open it to the book of Psalms into Psalm 119. 119. On Sunday, we looked at Psalm 19, which is one of three scripture psalms. Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119 all deal with scripture. So I want to piggyback on Psalm 19, jumping ahead to Psalm 119, to get something here more practical even than what we saw in Psalm 19 on Sunday. I want to ask the question, how to fight doubt and despair by swinging the sword of the word. What I mean by that is asking another question. What lessons can we gather from the Psalms, and specifically the biggest Psalm, about the relationship between the word and our little world, your life? Or we could put it this way. How do we get the honey of Scripture? Because Psalm 19 says it's sweet like honey. How do we get the honey of Scripture onto the hurt of our suffering. And this isn't just a convenient time to talk about this because we looked at Psalm 19 on Sunday. It's also a convenient time to talk about this because of what's ahead. Christmas is coming, and it's tis the season to be jolly, they say. But for some of us, that, that sounds laughable. It's anything but the season to be jolly. In fact, if you don't know, you should just do some web research. The holidays are some of the saddest times for for most people in this world. It's a time to reflect on what's missing or what went wrong or this family tension that's there and many people find uh, the Christmas season to be difficult, not not easy. And so we need help going into the season, and we need help even if you're all smiles so far, because something will happen, right? Something will be beyond your endurance, it seems, beyond your patience, it seems. We need help going into this season, and I think the Word is one of the tools we need to wield, uh, wield the sword in the fight for in the fight for truth and and for sanity, and for, even more than that, for joy. So I have 15 brief lessons from the 176 verses of Psalm 19. 15 brief lessons of what the Psalms teach us, what Psalm 19 reminds us to do and to think. The first is don't be surprised by suffering. It's all over the Psalms. We saw in Psalm 18 this powerful lesson that David thanks God for his deliverance, but underneath the surface of that thanking God for his deliverance is the story of decades, perhaps 50 years of David not having fulfillment, of praying and the answer not coming to fruition. Sufferings all over the Psalms. So many Psalms are either lament, what are sorrow, or judgment psalms. Easily a hundred psalms fall into the category of lament or judgment. And these judgment psalms are prayed, as you know, when there's trouble going on, right? It's the psalmist praying against God's enemies. They're praying against what God is against. Because what is against God has come upon God's people. They're suffering in those judgment psalms. And it's all over Psalm 119 as well, this theme of suffering. And 
I won't jump into those verses just yet because we'll see them as we go through it. So hold off on that one. In most of these points, we'll dig into some specific verses. The first is just a general observation. We shouldn't be surprised by suffering. It's in God's Word. It's especially in the Psalms. And it's also in this biggest psalm, Psalm 119, in a lot of places. The second lesson I think we get from Psalm 119 is that we should let the Word and prayer, by extension, be central to our suffering. The Word has to be central to our suffering. And not just central to our suffering. Of course, you know, I think, and the Bible says, central to all of life, right? Central to what comes before suffering, and in the midst of suffering, and of course, after suffering. But especially in suffering. Suffering is no time to just go numb and tune out and hope it will pass soon. The Word has to be central in our suffering. Scripture tells us that God is our rock, right? But how do we know that? We know that because Scripture tells us that. And where do we go to get it, to to rehearse it, to recount it, to remember it, and to see it outplayed again and again? We go to Scripture. Psalm 23, David there says, Your rod and your staff comfort me. Well, what's the rod and the staff? Well, it's not explicit. But the word has to be part of what is in the rod and what is in the staff. There's no real rod that God uses. There's no real staff that he pulls on to bring us back in. What does he use? He uses his spirit. He uses his word. So, like we saw on Sunday, there are some good reasons for all those food metaphors in the Bible about Scripture. The Scripture's like honey, or it's like water, or it's like milk, or meat, or bread. It's a good metaphor for Scripture because we need food like we need air. We need it or we die. We need Scripture, or spiritually speaking, we die. Now, notice Psalm 119 you probably already know this. Every eight verse, every eight verses, rather, is a section that begins with a new Hebrew word. So our English Bibles even have this. You notice right before verse one is this word in English. It's a Hebrew word, though, Aleph. It means the letter A, essentially, in Hebrew. In Hebrew. So it goes through the alphabet of, he- of uh, Hebrew. Each one of these verses begins with that letter that's assigned to it at the top of that section. I may have lost you there, but here's the point. Psalm 119 says, Scripture is the A to Z. Right? You get that. You know in English, if someone says, it's the A to Z, you know that means beginning and end, some total, everything in between. This is the Aleph and the Tav. This is all of life. The word of God touches upon all of life. If, if we were trying to make the Christian life um, pictured in a car, and you tried to say what scripture was, what part, of, what part of the car scripture is represented by, well, you could almost say everything, right? Like you could say, scripture is the steering wheel because it steers us in life. Scripture is the motor because it keeps us going. Scripture is the air conditioning in a hot summer day because it brings us comfort. 
You could really just keep going, right? Scripture is everything. And there's a close tie between God and his word. Look at Psalm 119, verse 48. It says there, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. An expression of praise. I'll lift up my hands. You'd almost expect it to say toward you, which I love. But it says toward your commandments, which I love. We would almost think that this is blasphemous if it wasn't in Scripture and we didn't know it to be right. Or look at Psalm 119, verse 114. It says there, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. You'd almost expect it to say, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in you. But how does he get to experience God as his hiding place and shield? The word. Close tie between God and his word. So we need to let the word be central to our suffering. Third, when we doubt it, when we doubt that reality, we need to listen well to the testimony of those of old. Those who have suffered more than we have and have known the comfort of his word more than we have. Let me show you a lot of verses on this theme. Look at verse 50. Verse 50 says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Here's one psalmist saying, I have comfort in your word. Your promise gives me life. Verse 52, when I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. He found comfort. We can find comfort. Trust those who've gone before us, those who've suffered more and known the comfort of God's word more than we have. Look at verse 62. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. Here's an example. I get up in the middle of the night to find comfort. And he does, to praise him, to praise him because of God's righteous rules. Look at verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts then, verse 93, for by them you've given me life. Here's a testimony of someone who's suffered more than you have probably. If his word had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Or verse 140, your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. It's well tried. The testimony of God's people through the ages is that God's word is a comfort and we can depend on, depend on it. A fourth principle would go like this. If you don't find comfort, keep looking. Keep looking. It's there. Look at verse 82. 82 says, My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? Now, literally, I think this verse is saying, My eyes are growing tired searching your word because I'm looking for comfort and I'm not finding it. I'm saying, when will you comfort me? And my eyes are burning. They're hurting. The vision is somewhat distorting, but I'm not giving up. I know it's there. 
If you don't find comfort, keep looking even when eyes fail. Look at verse 147. Arise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. No, he's in need. Do you see that? I cry for help. But I hope in your word. That's where my hope lies. Fifth, pray that God would light up his word. Pray that God would open your eyes. Go back to verse 18. Verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. He's not just testifying to you. I've seen wonderful things out of his law. I've seen great things in the word. He's praying to God. God would show him wondrous things out of his law. And then verse 34 says, Give me understanding that I might keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. It's all over this psalm, this prayer for what we call illumination, that God's word lights up, makes sense, and inflames our hearts. That's the fifth thing. The sixth is this. Don't just read or skim, but chew, ponder, meditate on God's word. Verse 15 It says, I will meditate on your precepts and I will fix my eyes on your ways. When we don't see wondrous things in God's word, we can pray for his help. But perhaps equally important is that we do more than just skim. We don't just skim, we we fix on certain things. We lock on to certain things. We ruminate over certain things until we get more truth, more clarity about God's ways, more energy about spiritual things. Verse 27, he says, Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Do you see? It's both prayer request and Personal resolve. Seventh, we're forgetful people. So keep remembering, keep recounting, keep rehearsing, and keep reapplying. We could find so many many verses in Psalm 119 that are of this theme, but just look at verse 55. I remember your name in the night, O Lord. And keep your law. If you think that means something really quick and short, I remember his name. He's Yahweh. And that's it? No. The name of God represents the whole of God. I remember his name means I remember him. I remember his plan. I remember his ways. I remember what he said. I remember his commandments. I remember parts of his word. I remember him in the night. And that, hence, leads to him keeping his law. The eighth thing we could observe from Psalm 119 is that we shouldn't be surprised that a fight for joy, a fight for faith, is actually a fight. It's not easy. You see that all through this psalm. Whoever it was that wrote this psalm, we're not sure who it is. It 
possibly could be David, some think Daniel. Whoever wrote it, he's more spiritual than you. And he's more spiritual than me. I mean, he wrote the biggest psalm. I think that just pretty much lets you know he's more spiritual than you, right? And yet you see fight, you know, resolve. You see resilience all through it. Look at verse 123. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. He's longing for it. He's longing for personal experience of salvation. He's longing for the fulfillment of God's promises in righteousness in his own life and in and among his people. He's longing for it, though. It's a good thing. It's a good longing, like the, like the Apostle Paul, Philippians 3. I press forward to the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So, I open my mouth and I pant because I long for your commandments. What does it mean to long for God's commandments? Is it that he doesn't know them? I think a guy who writes 176 love verses on God's word has read all of God's word, knows God's word, probably memorized much of the Old Testament law. And yet he says, I long for your commandments. What's that mean? He's eager to get more of them, to apprehend them, to understand them, to obey them. So in verse 135, he says, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. He wants more. There's a fight for faith, a fight for joy, and we shouldn't be surprised that there's work or that we don't feel this or that on any given day. A ninth principle would be that we pray for God to work and to help through his word. That he would work and he would help through the word. Because you see all through this psalm, this little phrase, you can search it. If you have a Bible program or on the web when you get on a Bible website, you search the phrase, according to your word. And you'll see things like verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. It's a better thing to pray, strengthen me according to your word, than it is just to pray, strengthen me. Because there's something very specific, right? It's not vague. Strengthen me. Give me strength. What's that mean? The spiritual equivalent of Wheaties or spinach for Popeye. What are we asking the Lord to do? When we say, give me strength, or when we say, give me wisdom, or when we say, Lord, give me joy, what are we asking for? Are we asking that his word would come alive to us and he would strengthen or convict or energize, give joy through his word? That's the way he works. You see in verse 76, let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Give me comfort. Let me sense your love according to your promises. You see how that's word driven, connected? Or verse 93, I'll never forget your precepts for by them 
you have given me life. You've given me life in your precepts. We could keep going. I'll let me just give you a few more on this theme. Look at, look at verse 107. I'm severely afflicted. Now, it would be fun right now, I think, if we didn't have this right in front of us. If, you're, if you have it open, you know what the rest of that verse says. But it would be fun to play fill in the blank. I'm severely afflicted. What's the rest of it say? And some of us would say, I'm severely afflicted, so Lord, please stop. I'm severely afflicted. I think I've had enough. I'm severely afflicted. Can you please dial it down a notch? And I think those are all fair things to pray in faith, trusting him. But this is a better thing to pray. I'm severely afflicted. Give me life according to your word. Give me life according to your word. Deliver me according to your word. Give me your mercy according to your word. It's all over the psalm. The tenth principle would be to see the word as both the goal and the means. You see in verse 17, deal bountifully bountifully with your servant that I might live and keep your word. Let me live so I can keep doing your word. It's the goal there. But there are other places where it's very clear. God's word is the means. We've seen a lot of those already. God's word is the means by which he'd be sustained, right? Do it according to your word. Do it with your word and through your word. He sees God's word as both the goal and the means. God's word isn't the means for a different goal. So that we go to Bible so that we've been good, so that he makes it stop, so that he blesses us with this. We go to the word as a means for getting joy. At the end, what is it? Well, it's not Bibleist living as our reward. The Bible is our reward. Eleventh, a principle would be here, pray for comfort and help, but don't forget to pray for obedience. Pray for obedience. When's the last time you prayed For obedience, I was convicted today thinking about that in my own walk with the Lord. Look at verse 33, and I want to read a chunk of Psalm 119 here, several verses in a row. Psalm 119, verse 33, notice how much of this is praying for obedience. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I'll keep it to the end. Give me understanding. Why? For comfort? Sure. For help? Sure. But also, that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. He's praying for God. He has to bring comfort, to bring help but that the end result would be obedience. A twelfth principle would be learn the discipline of resolve from this psalm. You see throughout this psalm, I will, I will, I will. See verse 15, 
I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This isn't cocky sureness. This is instead humble resolve. It's determined resolve. I'm going to do this. I'm going to delight in your word. I'm going to follow your ways. A thirteenth principle would be to make sure that God's word trumps everything. That it trumps everything. Oh boy, it's all over this psalm, but here's just one verse. 128 says, Therefore I consider all your precepts to be right, and I hate every false way. He just trusts God's ways are the right ways. So whatever else is competing out there, we we go with God. We go with what his word says. We don't need something else to verify it, substantiate it, to, to have experience, confirm it even. God's word trumps everything. That will help us in times of trial. A 14th principle would be do not get distracted. Don't get distracted. Look at verse 23. Even though princes... Sit plotting against me. Your servant will meditate on your statutes. Now, it's really easy for us to divorce ourselves. We've never had a prince sitting and plotting against us. Instead, you've got an email from a prince far away who has some money tied up and he'd like you to help. (laughs) You'll get 10% if you help him. Let me give you a little hint. You won't get that money. Well, imagine having a real prince plotting against you? He says, even though princes are plotting against me, I meditate in your word. What temptation toward distraction would there be when a a, a government is against you? Or look at verse 78. Let the insolent be put to shame because they've wronged me with falsehood. All kinds of people have wronged me, but as for me, I'll meditate in your precepts. They've wronged me with falsehood, but I've purposed to clear my name. But I've purposed to get them back. But I've purposed to show them I'll make more. I've purposed to meditate on his precepts. Verse 95 says, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. Bad people are in bushes, ready to ambush me. But I'll consider your testimonies. I'll chew on your word instead. 143, trouble and anguish have found me out. Just, it's vague, but we, we all know that, right? If someone said, trouble and anguish have found me out, you might think, oh, you got caught. Or, oh, you're fired. Or, oh, she left you. He says, but your commandments are my delight. We don't know whether his trouble and anguish had anything to do with his doing or the doing of those around him, the sinful doing of those around him. But but we know, regardless, his commandments are the delight. Lastly, we should long for the word And we should long for communion with God, not just in the dark nights. So maybe you can get good 
at going to God's word and having sweet time with him in his word and in prayer when you have dark days. But what you see in the psalm, we won't even look for it. It's it's everywhere. You can read it and see. There are all kinds of things here that where there's resolve, where there's hope, where there's delight in God's word, where there's comfort to be had in his word, apart from a, a season of suffering, apart from circumstances which stink. We need the word in communion with God to be our hope, our rock, our go-to in the good times and the bad. If it's one, then chances are it might not be the other, and vice versa. And there's another way that we that we fight doubt and despair with the word. And it's not so much in Psalm 119. But thank God we got a big book. Thank God for the gospel. Thank God for the way it's unfolded for us, especially in the New Testament, that God in Christ came. He died in our place to rescue us from our own sin, to rescue us from his wrath, to rescue us from hell, and eternal separation, the gospel. So often in the New Testament, I wish we had time for another 15 observations in the New Testament about how the gospel works to comfort us. But Romans 8 would be a key one, right? I mean, we we don't have to worry because we don't have any condemnation. And there's nothing now that can separate us from the love we have in Christ Jesus. I mean, if angels are against us, let alone bandits in bushes, if angels are against us, Paul says, we still have him because he still has us. Nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing. So the gospel helps us fight for comfort and confidence in the Lord. So... So especially in the month of December, but all year round, don't just go to Psalm 19 to stir up your comfort in God and in His Word. Go all over this grand book. Be strategic in your reading in this grand book and find great comfort. It's there. It's there. If you don't find it, keep looking, keep praying, keep seeking. The gospel is told to us through God's word, and, and it's also pictured for us in these symbols tonight at this table, the Lord's Supper, we call it, or communion. It's a time for us to come and see Jesus in our place, to see a picture of his sacrifice on our behalf, his, his righteousness lived out, and his death on our behalf. So tonight we recount our sin and our need We acknowledge that before the Lord. We repent of that sin before the Lord. We remember again our our need for a Savior. We rehearse the facts of the gospel to ourselves. We tell ourselves our hope lies outside of ourselves. And yet, there's union with Christ. That's why we eat of this meal. Because He's good. He's good to not just forgive, but He's good to commune with us and to join with us. We see these elements representing his life and his death and that's where our hope lies. So we're reassured of his goodness and his mercy and we're reassured of the victory, reassured of the assurance we can have in the gospel, not 
in last week's performance, not in our own righteousness. And that makes us happy, right? That makes us free and happy. And the Christian life is basically one of just cycling through those, those themes of guilt and grace and gratitude. Thinking through our need, thinking through His grace, and thinking through how to live in light of it, imperfectly so.